Good morning again. Uh, if you are feeling a little bit squashed at the back, there are plenty of seats just here up the front, so feel free to come as well. You'll find an outline uh, with the passage just in the new sheet you got, so uh, please uh, have that open if that will help you uh, follow along. Well, what's this a picture of? Now the first line in the outline makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> is it a duck? Or is it a rabbit? Or is it a drabbit? Well, it's both, isn't it? Uh, what you see depends on how you look at it. Uh, it might even depend on what somebody says. You are probably thinking, some of you, oh, look, it's definitely a duck. And then I said rabbit, and you went, all right, yeah, it's a rabbit. Uh, if we can have that picture back up again. This picture is Romans 9 and 10. <laughs> uh, so far, Paul has been explaining why so many uh, of God's people, Israel, have rejected the gospel. Uh, his explanations come from two different perspectives, but each perspective really represents the same reality. Even though they may appear contradictory, they are both true, a bit like this picture. On the one hand, it's the duck, right? That's chapter 9. Some accept and others reject Jesus because of God's choice, because of his election, because he graciously has mercy on some and he doesn't on others. On the other hand, Paul says in chapter 10, it's the rabbit. Some don't accept Christ because they choose to reject him. But God chooses, but he does so in a way that doesn't nullify our choice, our free response to the gospel. So we're still accountable for how we respond. And in the first half of chapter 10, Paul explained that when uh, Christ came, Israel continued to seek their own righteousness, that is, right relationship with God based on their works, through their own efforts to obey the law of Moses. But the problem was, right relationship with God couldn't come that way. You see, the measure of the law, the measure of morality is perfection. And that's a bar we simply can't jump. But the law looked forward to the one who could do that, Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life. And it's by faith in him, not by our own efforts, that we're made righteous. It's by trusting in him that we're restored to right relationship in God. For as verse 13 says, just before our passage, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's true whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And so today we're going to continue to look at the rabbit in verses 14 to 21 and explore some of its implications for us. Uh, let me pray as we do that. Our loving Heavenly Father, I pray as we come to your word that you might enlighten our minds and where our hearts are hard, please soften them by your spirit so that we might hear your word and do what it says. Amen. Now imagine for a moment you're a concerned Jewish uh, person and you're listening to Paul's argument and you imagine some of the objections they might have. And that's the, that is, by the way, the shape of these chapters. Uh, Paul's engaging with various Jewish objections 
to what he's saying. That's why he's quoting the Old Testament so much through these chapters, because of who he's talking to. Now, the particular objection in, these, in this passage, might, they, they might go something like this. Uh, yes, many uh, Jews haven't called on the name of Jesus. Uh, yes, many haven't accepted the gospel, but maybe there's a reason, right? Maybe there's a reason. Maybe it's because no one has been sent to them. Maybe it's because they haven't heard. Maybe it's because they haven't understood. And our passage this morning really deals with those objections. So let's pick it up again at verse 13. The Apostle Paul is uh, quoting the prophet Joel uh, in relation to Jesus. Uh, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And verses 14 and 15, you can see in your outline, they follow with a series of questions. They imply a chain of events that are necessary for that call and for that salvation to occur. So follow along. Uh, To call on Jesus, the Israelites need to believe, right? Believe. Make sure you're looking along. And to believe in him, they need to hear, right? And to hear uh, about him, they need someone to preach, right? To preach. Uh, The word preach here means a a verbal proclamation of news. See, in the ancient world, they didn't have social media or the internet, no Facebook groups, no midweek news, no TVs, no newspapers, no radios, and most people couldn't read, right? So communication of big news came through heralds. They'd come to the town square, the marketplaces, and shout out the good news. Uh, Caesar has defeated the barbarians. Or in the case of Pauline apostles, Jesus is Lord. And so for the Israelites to hear about Jesus, people need to preach. And to preach what needs to happen. That's right, heralds, preachers need to be sent. It's interesting. Often people conceive of Christianity as like a a, a personal search for God, right? We're on a spiritual journey. We seek him out, we discover him. It's a bit like orienteering. We've got the gear, we've got our backpack full of supplies, we've got our compass, maybe a map, and we're out there going to find God, somewhere out there, hidden in the bush, waiting, hopefully, for us to find him. But Christianity is not orienteering. It's a search and rescue mission. We're the ones out in the bush. We're the ones lost and needing to be found. And we don't find God, he finds us. He actively seeks us out. He sent Jesus. He sends out gospel preachers. He sends us out into our communities. The whole direction of Christianity is opposite to what some people imagine. And that direction helps us understand what God is like. He's not cold and distant. He's not indifferent. He loves us and he comes for us. He's the leaving the 99 to find the one kind of God. 
So for Israel to hear the message of Christ, preachers need to be sent. So the implied question is, maybe no one was sent, right? Maybe that's why so many Israelites haven't accepted the good news. But no, that's not the reason. Preachers were sent. Paul quotes Isaiah 52 to confirm this. Uh, uh, Originally, it's about the heralds who announced the good news of the end of Israel's exile. Yes, preachers need to be sent for people to hear the good news. But the quote here also has another purpose. It's confirmation that preachers were indeed sent to Israel with the good news. The word for good news here just means gospel. And so Paul here is applying that verse from Isaiah to the current situation. Yes, God sent heralds to preach the gospel to Israel. The Apostle Paul, the other apostles, other Christians... Well, let's just pause for a moment and consider what implications some of these words have for now. Paul's words weren't originally about us, but they do have implications for us. Uh, There's a quote on the screen that you may have heard before. Preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. You may have heard that before. Uh, It's often attributed to a guy called St Francis of Assisi. He was a revered Catholic leader of the Middle Ages. What do you think? Rhetorical question or something you can just uh, answer in your minds. Because I want to say what I think. (laughs) Just jokes. Uh, I think there's lots that's true in this statement. Uh, Not just our words impact uh, people's conversion to Christ. Prayer does. The way churches behave does. The kindness Christians show does. The obvious integrity of our work does. The practical help we give. The welcome people experience when they walk into a church. They all powerfully communicate something of Christ and the gospel. But here's what's not true about the statement. It's impossible to preach the gospel without words. It's like saying, feed the hungry, use food if necessary. That would be a disappointing meal. The gospel is the message that Jesus is Lord. And for people to put their trust in him, to call on him, they need to receive it, whether that's through verbal proclamation, everyday conversations, whether it's through reading the Bible, Uh, another Christian book, a blog, a YouTube clip, or even through miraculous visions. They need to hear, receive the message of Christ. So for Israelites to call on the Lord, preachers need to be sent. And our colleagues, our family, our friends need to receive and respond to the gospel to be saved. And by the way, there is no actual evidence that St Francis of Assisi actually said these words. He actually wanted to make sure that our words and our deeds matched up and amen to that, right? So because God saved through the gospel message, the church, and when I say the church, I, I mean us together, we need to be actively engaged in evangelism, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to raise up, send, support Uh, evangelists overseas into Melbourne into our community 
And we need to pray as Jesus commanded. Ask the Lord to raise up and send workers out into the harvest field. For the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Because evangelism is necessary for conversion. And it's sufficient for people to come to Christ. However, as I kind of suggested earlier, it's often not the only thing that impacts a person's conversion. And sometimes it's not even the main thing. I remember the moment that I turned to Christ. I can remember it vividly after a sermon on Acts 2. But a lot happened for me to get to that point. I'd had some difficult experiences growing up in my family and that made it hard for me even to hear the gospel. And so for me, experiencing a welcoming and loving Christian community was super important for me. Uh, There's a diagram there that kind of shows a lot of the factors that can influence a person's conversion. So as you look at that, as you think about yourselves, what's your story? What impacted your conversion? Perhaps you could share uh, your stories with, it, with each other today over morning tea. Perhaps uh, if you're in a small group, a, a connect group, you could share them uh, in your groups this week. And because there are so many factors... We can have that diagram down now, thanks. Because there are so many factors, bringing people to Christ needs whole church engagement. You see, it's not an individual event, an individual pursuit, it's a team sport. The person who shares the gospel, the evangelist, might be the striker, the full forward, the goal shooter, pick your sport, the one who scores a goal, but they can't do it by themselves. It requires an entire team to get the ball there. So the church needs evangelists, but it also needs prayers. It needs givers. It needs event coordinators. It needs welcomers. It needs people opening their homes. It needs good listeners. It needs people living question-provoking, God-honouring, and Jesus-exemplifying lives at home, at school, and at work. And the reality is not all people are called to be evangelists. Ephesians 4 says that some uh, people are specifically given by the church, uh, by Jesus to the church to be evangelists. And you might know some of those people. Some people are great at sharing the gospel, right? Some people uh, have that knack of finding opportunities. And some people will see lots of people converted through uh, their lives, and their ministry. You can think of the late Billy Graham, right? What an evangelist. But the Bible doesn't say that every Christian has that gift. Nevertheless, because of how people come to Christ, we all have a role to play. And just because we're not a big E evangelist, it doesn't mean we never share the gospel. Uh, 1 Peter 3 says, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. So, when you're near the goals, be ready to take a shot and pray that such opportunities would come. So, how could you be involved in people coming to Christ? How can we do this together? 
It'll be re re uh, worth reflecting on that question, particularly as we think about our mission in September, right? Take the time to pray deliberately each week in your connect groups. Take time to pray and prepare. And there's lots of ways to be involved within God's mission apart from Mission Week, right? That's a particular time, but there's other ways. When we welcome newcomers to church, when we support and encourage our global mission partners, you can even petition Parish Council to give more money to them, if you'd like. Go to the CMS conference, the Church Mission Society conference in September, summer under the sun. Be open to changes here at church that make it more accessible to people who don't know Christ. Invite your church friends and other friends over for a meal so they can meet each other. Help with one of our Christianity Explored courses. Bring someone to one. Help run a marriage course or a play group. Support the work of Christian groups on campus. We have one that meets here every week, our Christian Union International, which is a ministry to international students. You could help cook for them. You could get involved at uh, home tutoring over at our, with our estates ministry at the Carlton Flats. There's, there's lots of ways to be involved in God's mission. Well, let's get back to our passage. There's a chain of events necessary for uh, the Israelites to call on Jesus to be saved, sending, preaching, hearing, believing, calling. It reminds me of something my daughter Josie and I made uh, for school during lockdown. Remember that? Wasn't that fun, homeschooling? Let's have a look at the video. That wasn't the original back, background music, by the way. <laughs> and here we go. And hey! <laughs> now, that, friends, is a Rube Goldberg machine. Now, when that's at home, it's a machine that completes some sort of function through a series of chain reaction steps. You set it off then, as you saw, bang, bang, bang. And in this case, the light goes on. I was quite happy with the mark that, that we got. <laughs> but you can imagine, it took a long time to build, right? And to film. See, if one step goes wrong, if there's a break in the chain, it just, it just doesn't work, right? And then you have to set it up all over again and again and then. Well, for Israel, there was a break in the chain of events, right? And the light didn't come on. For verse 16, some in Israel didn't accept the message. Paul quotes Isaiah 53 to confirm. It's a prophecy about the suffering servant who Israel wouldn't accept, and they didn't, because that suffering servant was Jesus. So what went wrong? Where was the break in the chain? Why didn't the light turn on? Well, we know people were sent, right? Enter again our hypothetical Jewish conversation partner. He has a suggestion for us in verse 18. But I asked, did they not hear? Maybe that's the problem. Maybe people have been sent, 
but maybe the people of Israel didn't hear. Well, what did he say? Of course they did. Israel heard. Well, Paul, how, how do you know? Because their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Uh, Paul quotes a Psalm, uh, Psalm 19 to answer. Uh, it's about creation itself, how it declares God's glory and his power. And the quote refers to uh, God's universal revelation, the universal uh, message of God that's evident from creation. But here Paul applies it to our current, his current situation. Has Israel heard the gospel? Yes. Preachers have been sent. Their voices have gone or are in the process of going to the ends of the earth, to the marketplaces, to the town squares, to the synagogues. Yes, Israel has heard. Maybe then there's a different problem. Maybe the problem is understanding. Verse 19, again I ask you, did Israel not understand? No, that's not the problem either. They understood. Uh, again, Paul quotes the Old Testament. There's a lot of quoting of the Old Testament going on, isn't there? And here he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and Isaiah chapter 35. And these passages predict the rejection of the gospel by Israel and its acceptance by the Gentiles. And what are they called here? People with no knowledge or understanding. You see, even those with no knowledge or understanding, no law, no prophets, no promises, God has revealed himself to them and they've understood. The light has come on. And that's not to say all Gentiles or all Israelites have rejected. We're talking about a pattern here. The light has come on for the Gentiles and it should have for Israel the problem isn't sending or hearing or understanding. The problem was verse 21. The problem is the heart. Have a look. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. From the idolatry of the golden calf Till now, God has held out his hands to Israel, pleading for them to come back. Listen to Jesus' words from Matthew 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are not willing. You were not willing. Not lack of knowledge, not lack of opportunity, but disobedience, stubbornness, hard hearts. Well, is it a duck or is it a rabbit? Oh yes, God chooses, but our decisions are not compelled. Israel has been given opportunity after opportunity to turn back. Those Israelites who have denied Christ, who have rejected his mercy, indeed anyone who rejects Christ, whatever other factors might be involved, and there might be plenty of factors involved, 
Ultimately, they do so because they choose to. Well, this passage ends with God, an anguished father holding out his hands, longing for Israel to come home. As a kid, I lived in uh, South Yarra on the local government housing estates, and there it had an adventure playground. Are you familiar with those? They're kind of a big playground where kids can go and play and do all sorts of dangerous things that probably couldn't do these days. Anyway, I was there. I was around eight, and I kind of lost track of time, uh, as kids do, and suddenly it was getting dark. And suddenly I heard my mum frantically calling my name. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to get busted when I get home. At that point, I didn't really want to go home. I could just imagine the reception that I was going to get. Some people imagine that God's like that. A furious parent, arms crossed in anger, just waiting to get you in trouble, to punish you as soon as you come home. But he's not like that. He's a father of the lost son. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what you've become. He's standing at the gate with his arms open wide, ready with mercy, ready to embrace his children when they choose to come home. That's what God is like. And because that's what God is like, the last word for Israel isn't disobedience. The last word isn't judgment. The last word is hope. And we'll hear more about that hope in chapter 11. I imagine for some of us, there's been grief brought up over the last few weeks as we've gone through the book of Romans. Our grief for those who we love that don't know Christ. Grief for those who have never known him and grief for those maybe who have walked away. Our friends, our family, our mums, our dads, our wives, our children. And that grief kind of often just sits in the background but this series might have brought that to the surface. It can happen when we talk about the doctrine of election. I know God chooses here. I know that it's his right to have mercy. But why doesn't he have mercy on the people that I love? Sometimes God's sovereignty feels like cold comfort. I don't know all the answers. I don't think we know how it all fits together. But I know that the doctrine of election isn't meant to make us feel that way. It's the work of the evil one that turns God's sovereign mercy and grace into a source of grief and fear and despair. It's meant to be joyous. It's meant to be glorious. It's meant to fill us with wonderful comfort 
and assurance. That's why it's at the heart of Romans chapter 8 and the great promise that nothing in all creation can separate us from God's love. You see, it's only because God has chosen me from before creation, it's only because he's changed my disobedient and stubborn heart, it's only because he holds me every step of the way, right through to glory, that I know that I could be his forever. If God isn't sovereign over salvation, how can we trust that? But when we hold God's sovereignty here and we hold that with his love and mercy and grace here, then we have wonderful hope. Because it means he's powerful to save and it means that he wants to save. And that means our prayers for our loved ones aren't pointless. God is moved by our prayers and he has the power to answer them and it means we can share the gospel with confidence knowing that the Holy Spirit will work through the gospel to soften hearts this is what J.I. Packer wrote the sovereignty of God in grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism being pointless there may be people we love who have been praying for and maybe we've been praying for them for a long time And it might feel like it's impossible that they could ever be saved. But do you know what? God's in the business of doing the impossible. He's saved plenty of people right at the end and he's used to saving people that you'd least expect. Because he's more powerful, more sovereign and more loving than we could ever imagine. And that means his mercy gate is never closed. Shall we pray? Loving Father God, we thank you that when we're in your hands, nothing can, be, nothing can separate us from the love that you've shown us in Christ. Father, we bring before you those on our hearts that we love, that we long to, to see uh, come to you. Father God, in your mercy, bless our prayers and bless your gospel. Amen.